Hey guys, it's Edge Martinez. They call me the voice of New York. And 50 years ago, hip hop started right here in New York City. And we're celebrating the five boroughs all year long. Check out nyctourism.com forward slash hip hop for cultural stories, events, interviews, and more. nyctourism.com forward slash hip hop. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7? Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. How's it going, everyone? This is Tyler Dunn here with Jim Monas for another edition of the Go Long Podcast. And straight from the jump, Jim, we are joined by the one and only Dante Whitner, who uh, he was my first guest at Go Long for the Q&As we do every week. It was phenomenal. Dante, I feel like we could have talked for hours, man. You had me all jacked up wanting to play in your era. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, but now it's Super Bowl week or weeks, two weeks of a buildup. So figured we'd bring you on, talk a little shop, share some old war stories, talk a little fight or flight meditation, anything and everything, man. Good good to see you here on the Zoom. Good to see you as well. Good to see both of you guys. How about we start this off with a cheers? I like right? it. You guys have your beer. I have my vibe organic, right? <laughs> we can start this thing off with a cheers before we get started, right? I like it. Throwback. We got our uh, Louis IPAs, hamburgers. <laughs> Woo, thanks. Spicy. Bitter for you. That looked bitter. Well, you know what? The turmeric and the ginger does so much for your intestinal system. Turmeric is good against fighting cancers off. So I try to have at least one or two shots of turmeric and ginger a day. You know, Dante, it's funny. My doctor said Jameson does the exact same thing. (laughs) So I just do shots of Jameson with my my beer. I I don't know if it's working, though. Where did your doctor go to uh, medical school at? Same one I did, Bloomsburg University. Oh yeah, they probably need to take his uh, take his certification away. Yeah, can't be pushing that information out there like that. Bad stuff. I mean, Dante, you're still keeping yourself like in insanely good shape from from our conversation. What was it a couple months ago? Um, just t- tell people what you're up to these days. We we know you're um you're an analyst out in the Bay Area, covering all the sports out there, but even your personal time from the meditation to working out to nutrition. I mean, what are you up to? Well, what I'm up to these days is first and foremost, I do TV. I've been doing NBC sports Bay area for the last three years, primarily covering the 49ers, a little radio, a KMVR that I have a, a year to year contract with. And then as far as my personal life, as far as staying in shape, I like to do a lot of high yoga. I pretty much do high yoga three to four times a week at 6 a.m. in the morning. Like we hit the mat before the sun comes up. Ancient medicine, Eastern medicine, you know, it really has helped me since I've retired. I actually stay nimble and really 
learn how to control fight or flight mode, right? And that's really like monkey mindset when your mind goes crazy and all these thoughts. So I've learned how to control those thoughts. And on the, um, as far as other things that I'm doing is I'm a partner at Kirtland Hills Capital where we're all about helping NFL players, NBA players, NHL players, professional players in all leagues understand the public markets, understand generational wealth and understand how the wealthy 1%, top 1% manage their money and how each and every, I mean, how every seven years they actually flip it when they reinvest their dividends. So we've really been pushing that information out to NFL players and working with the NFL on revamping their financial literacy program. That's been going on for a few months. Me and my partner, James Lethard, has been leading that. Um, actually a partner at Crossover VC, which is a venture capital private equity fund. We get in on early stage venture capital and we've been really been teaching NFL players, NBA players that, um, lane as well. So I've been really, really busy. So, you know, I, I prefer to stay busy. You know, right now I'm working on calling live games right from the broadcast booth. I feel like you know, developed into a pretty good analyst from in-studio. So I wanted to add another weapon to my repertoire by being able to call live games, and it's been going pretty good so far. I got to say, too, Jim, I mean, just watching as many clips as I can of Dante here, I'm not just blowing smoke. I just love the the truth analysis. I, I forget how you labeled it, but it was perfect in our conversation. I mean, you, there's no BS. There's no fluff. There's no cliches. He's not trying to be buddies with former players. It's just the real deal. If the truth hurts, the truth hurts, and we need more of that. So I, I hope we see you on TV for a long, long time, and I enjoy it. Yeah, and that's what I've been working on. You have so many people that come into this business, and especially when you're recently retired, you have a lot of friends and colleagues, people that you probably play with, coaches that you probably play for. But when it comes to TV, you have to say exactly what you see, and you can't protect individuals. Just as if they have great plays, you give them their credit. If they have bad plays, then you let the fans know at home because they're the ones that's emotionally and physically and mentally, financially invested in the football team, and they want their team to perform well. So they want to know why are certain individuals are responsible for it happening, and I felt like I was the perfect guy to do that. I don't take shots at guys on a personal level. It's all about football. If you're a great football player, I give you a credit. If not, then I must tell the fans at home what you're up to. Hey, you could be a scout, Dante, because that's what we do in scouting. And sometimes it's hard. It's not personal. But, some, you know, guys have weaknesses or guys, you know, it's just you explaining to people. It's not personal. You're saying, hey, this is what he should have done on that play. Not enough people hear that. And, and it, it would be refreshing. I thought Aqib Tlaib did a great job. Um, I heard him on Fox this year doing a play-by-play. It was nice to get a corner. Like, I'd like to hear your perspective on games like from a safety and corner. It's always quarterback. It's always, you know, some offensive linemen. I like to hear the defensive spots because that nasty edge is, is something that you guys, not everybody has, and you guys do such a good job of explaining to people, hey, this is why he broke here or this is why he was out of place here. And you don't get to hear that a lot. So I hope I hope you get a good chance to do that. Yeah, and I've been working on simplifying the words that are in my head that are normal to me are, for instance, over route or a gap or these terms that the general fan don't really understand. I've learned 
to put them in a simplistic form to be able to make sure that they understand it from home. And that's what it is first and foremost when you're talking on TV. It's, for example, just like Tony Romo put in the article, he was talking about, okay, so if I'm watching a football game and it's week seven and, you know, we have a team that's five and two and they're up 35 to 14 with seven minutes left in the fourth quarter, does the fan at home really care about the intricate plays or do they want to know what it's going to take to fix their football team, right? I would think that at that point you have to transition with another frame of mind and say, hey, let's not talk about X's and O's right here. Let's talk about what the fan at home is thinking and what they want you to answer for them. So if you can think in that aspect, I think that you could be a really good, um, you know, announcer from the booth. But then I realized that it's not more so explaining the game from the booth. It's the filler information in between the plays and making sure that you have enough information and communication skills to be able to fill in that space. That's the hardest part. That's why a lot of athletes can't really do that because they think you're just going to step on TV and say, oh, they're running this play. No, that's about 10% of it. The other 90% is the study that you put in during the week and then being able to relay that message. So I think that I can do that. And that other 90%. Dante, I feel like, especially in in 2020, where everybody's afraid of offending everybody, we get such watered-down broadcasts with sports. I mean, I find myself almost wanting to hit mute and listen to some Coulter Wall or listen to some music, something, because I can't take – it's insipid. It's it's, There's no substance. It's weightless. It's literally dictation of exactly what we're seeing. I mean, because I think because people are afraid, oh, my God, if I say something wrong and – just tick somebody off. They're, I'm going to get the Twitter mob to come after me. I'm going to get ratioed. Like, who gives a shit about any of that? Like, that's why you're there. Like, we want your opinion. We want your analysis. And people don't like it. Too bad. And you want to be able to point out the things that the general fan can't see at home. Yeah. For instance, if they give up a big pass play, why did they give up a big pass play? Yes, everybody at home can see that they gave up a big pass play. You don't need to repeat that. But what is it within the intricate details of the defense or offense that allowed this to happen? How quick can you pick that up? How many of the pieces can you put together without seeing the full screen of what's going on and say, hey, I know exactly what happened there. I know who the problem was on that and be able to relay it really quickly like that. So that's the biggest part of it. And I think that I can do that. No doubt. Hey, that's a good segue right into the – this is that Bills game that just happened. Tyler and I had to break it down the other night, and we were kind of harsh on the head coach for the Bills, Sean McDermott, a little bit. We thought he coached a little scared and and, and didn't go for that game. Like three points against the Chiefs, in our opinion, kicking field goals against the Chiefs, is that's a win for their defense. They don't care about three points. How, how would you have talked about that on air, live on the air like that? Well, yeah, when you're in those big games, you have to go for it. There's no second guessing. There's no plan is safe, especially when you're the underdog. You really don't have anything to lose because people don't expect you to win that football game anyway. So you have to go for it there on third down. And then another thing is I'm a little disappointed with Leslie Frazier. You know, with him coming from Minnesota, you know, with the great prestigious defensive coaches that they have over there with Mike Zimmer, right, and uh, and uh uh, the teaching that he learned, how can you allow Tyreek Hill and Kelsey to beat you like everybody else? They keep aligning in the same formations, three receivers to the left, Kelsey in a back to the right, right? They're either going to run the route tree with Kelsey to the right or they're going to run the vertical down the field with Tyreek Hill 
where they're going to run the vertical deep over with Tyreek Hill. Those are their, like, set plays that they play with. It's almost like we're playing Madden video game against my son, and I continue to run the same play over and over and over. First off, if you're going to beat these guys, you move two safeties back deep. And I learned this from Vic Fangio, who's the head coach of Denver Broncos now, who's one of the most well-respected defensive coordinators in the league. You can't beat these guys playing outside man leverage, one safety in the middle of the field, and show them the coverage. You see when Tyreek Hill jumped off sides a couple times? He was so excited that he saw that coverage and he knew a big play was coming that he was trying to get a jump on the defense. There's no way that you can confuse Patrick Mahomes and you can stop Tyreek Hill from running these routes if, first and foremost, you don't put somebody on top of Tyreek Hill to disturb the route and then have safeties on both sides deep to know that if he's going to run deep, I have a guy over the top of him. If he's going to run deep and run a deep over route, I have the backside safety always paying attention to where he is. And if you don't do that, you don't have a chance against Kansas City. You almost have to go down swinging in every way. You go for it on fourth down. Your corners play aggressive. You you, bl- you blitz. You take chances. I mean, this is, as I thought Jim put it great on our last podcast, this is Alabama-Clemson. This is the Golden State Warriors. I mean, you're the underdog. Why are you why are you playing to keep it close? It, it just boggles the mind, especially when they play this team in the regular season. Like, I, I don't know. I think it's pretty demoralizing right now for the Bills. Yeah, and then with these guys, you have to break tendencies. Whenever we would play Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees or Tom Brady when I was in San Francisco, I think we probably only lost one time to, to those guys collectively. Oh, yeah. We yeah, would always make everything look the same. It would all start with a two-high shell – Corners look the same, nickelbacks look the same, linebackers look the same. So whether we were going to hit them with a surprise zero blitz, where we're showing all coverage, cover two, wait till the snap get to about four to six seconds, everybody creep up to their position, and then hit it on the run. That's the only way that you can blitz these guys. You can't blitz these guys with a bunch of guys just moving around, showing where the blitz is coming from because they're too good and they understand where their outlets are, especially when you're coached by Andy Reid. Andy Reid is going to always give you an option to be able to throw the football. So you have to hit him with some surprise blitzes. You have to do some unorthodox things where maybe your linebackers are aligned on wide receivers, showing zone, and then end up playing man. Because anytime you see a linebacker aligned on a wide receiver, especially at a number two or number three position, that pretty much tells the quarterback zone coverage. So if you can throw off some tendencies and say, hey, we're going to align and make you think zone, but we're going to make our linebackers play man coverage on the wide receivers. By the time the quarterback gets the ball, figures that out, if he can't escape the pocket, then you should be able to confuse him and get him on the ground. Not every time, but sometimes. And then sometimes they're just going to figure it out. But if you don't do these disguises pre-snap, if you don't have this stuff built into the defense, you don't have a chance to beat them. Completely. I mean, and you're watching Green Bay, Tampa Bay. I know Aaron Rodgers put up pretty good numbers, but it seemed like Todd Bowles, I mean, earlier in the season too, did a good job with all of this against Aaron Rodgers, just trying to show him something different. What did, what was your takeaway from that game? I think he did an awesome job of showing him difference. And one thing about Todd Bowles is he has this guy's built into his defensive scheme. Sometimes you'll see safety super high in the middle of the field. It looked like cover three or cover one with a safety just sitting there. And then that safety from the middle will rotate over the top, high and wide, or a number one receiver, not allowing the quarterback to read that mail because it's built into the defense. And a lot of those defensive coordinators, when they step into that meeting on Wednesday and they're giving you 
the individuals that you have to stop and what's the objective for this game plan, they don't have that stuff built into their defense. They don't trust their defensive backs to say, okay, we know we have this coverage. We know that this coverage is built to stop the run, right? If we see Kelsey away from the formation, which is not a blocking formation, a running formation, and we see Tyreek Hill a line away from the formation, give us automatic checks to check to in the secondary so that we take away the number one threats and the deep threats and the objective and then let everybody else beat us if that's what they're going to do. If you don't do that, you don't have a chance. Now, Jim, I know your Saints put up a lot of yards against Dante's Niners, but they uh, they ended up kind of kicking your ass. <clears throat> they, they, they did. They got the last one. Um, are you going to make me go get another drink? I, I don't want to relive that game because I'm telling you we were poised to win the Super Bowl again that year. I really thought we were. And, I mean, that Alex Smith – oh, I want to talk about him in a second too, Dante, because that's got to be crazy for you to watch him go through what he went through. But that throw he made to Vernon Davis – against those safeties. I'll never forget it. I was in St. Petersburg because I was working as a scout for the Saints, so we were at the East-West All-Star game. And literally, my, my best friend on the Saints staff, Josh Lucas, he works for the Chicago Bears now, we literally just sat and stared at each other for like a day. Like, we just couldn't believe that's how the season ended. We thought we had the game won. We thought we won. I mean, you knocked out Pierre. Was that one of the better games in your career you can remember, like, being a part of? Yeah, I think that was the best game I've ever played. It was a back-and-forth game all day. Vic Fangio told us the night before, who was our defensive coordinator, said, hey, this offense is a high-powered offense. This is the best offense we've seen all year. We can't really get a beat on them on how to take away certain guys, but we do know one thing. If you allow them to come out with their first 15 plays, which are scripted, they get momentum and they go in on this first drive, it's going to be hard for us to beat them. They're going to have confidence flowing. Right, their fans at the stadium will be behind them. Drew, Fee, Drew Brees feeling good. So when they got down to the three yard line and I hit them, you know that was the perfect you know turn of events for us because we thought they were going in to score. Remember the night before he said, "Hey, if you let these guys score, they're probably going to beat us." So it was a big play. That was a huge game, and I believe that that game goes down in the history as one of the best playoff games ever played. For, for people who don't remember, this is 2011 NFC Divisional Playoffs. I mean, I remember covering the Packers that, that year at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. And, I mean, they were 15-1 and one in the regular season. You know, they they think they're probably just going to steamroll everybody. So they they lose to the Giants in that divisional round. You guys beat <laughs> You guys beat New Orleans and you play New York. I mean, the swing of emotions from that game against Jim Saints, I mean, that's an emotional game. You got Vernon Davis in tears after that touchdown. And then you go, you play the Giants, and that's an emotional game. I mean, that was there for the taking. I mean, really, you guys could have been Super Bowl champs that season. Yeah, we felt like we had an opportunity all three years. We went to the NFC Championship three years in a row, and we felt like we had a chance to win the Super Bowl all three years. I think we, Ted Ginn Jr., who was our punt returner that year, was out with an injury. Kyle Williams was the punt returner. You know, we were, you know, dominating on defense all game. It started to rain in the fourth quarter, and something just told me, like, this guy's about to drop this football, oh. right? The ball goes up. It might have been overtime or fourth quarter. Slips through his hands. They run a couple plays, kick the field goal, go on the beat. I think I cried all the way home from San Francisco all the way to San Jose was like an hour, 15-minute drive because, you know, it's just a roller coaster ride and you feel like you've won a game and then you actually lose the game in the same night. It's a devastating feeling. It almost felt like 
the same type of feeling we had when we lost the Super Bowl to the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, I don't know. Do, do you talk to Kyle Williams? I mean, that's kind of what he, he's known for, for better or worse. It, it's – I always feel – I mean, you know, Brandon Bostic and Green Bay, same kind of thing. These guys were one play – you, you hear the name and you think of one play, and fair or unfair, that that's what happens as as a teammate. I mean, did you did you talk to him after something like that? I mean, what do you think's going through his head in that moment? And that, what happens when you play in those big games in those high pressure situations? The guys that perform are remembered for the right things, and the guys that make mistakes, they remember for their mistakes. And he actually received death threats for that. It was a serious situation, but wow. none of the teammates actually was too hard on him. Of course, we were upset. Of course, we felt like, yeah, it might have been his fault. But at the same time, we understand the situation. That could have been any of us. That could have been me giving up a touchdown in the fourth quarter. That could have been any one of our defensive backs back there. So we understand, you know, when you put it all on the line, certain things happen. We just wish we could have that play back and just wish Ted Ginn Jr. was out there because at that time he was one of the best home returners in the National Football League. And Sorry, Jim. Hop in. I'm, I'm hogging this conversation. Like, but when we talked about that defense, Dante, I mean, I think a lot of our conversation a couple months ago was about, like, just the nasty, mean dudes that just want to kick your ass. I mean, that kind of defense, the personalities that drove it were, were rare. I mean, what, what does that really look like up close and any stories that you can still remember to this day of just the, the temperament that, 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 that 49ers defense brought? Well, the temperament that, you know, the way I can explain it is a lot of NFL testosterone floating around that defensive side of the ball, right? <laughs> Anything might happen throughout the week. Guys might get arrested, might not show up for practice. But when they get on the field on Sunday, guys were ready to play. And it wasn't just that, you know, we were aggressive and physical. We had intelligent guys, guys who understood defense, who understood where quarterbacks wanted to go with the ball, who understood when they wanted to snap the ball. Who understood situational football, who understood leverage, how to disguise blitzes, how to attack quarterbacks. So it wasn't just that we were, you know, a lot of guys just ready to run around and be physical, but we had to think the game and communicate, and then we were able to execute. And we had two of the best inside linebackers who allowed us to play a lot of too high cover four safety and help the outside corners a lot. We put a lot on those guys, and that's why Patrick Willis deserved to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And that's why Navarro Bowman does as well. There's certain linebackers that you scheme around. No knock against Brian Erlacher and all these guys, but when you go from that system that they played, that Tampa 2 system in Chicago, you pretty much have one back, one gap all the time. Or you have a zone drop and you just stand in a place and they scheme around you for you to be able to make plays. Well, Patrick Willis and Navarro Bowman, we expected them to stop the running with six and seven guys in the box, which means that on each and every play – one of those guys was taking on a guard or a center or a tackle, and we expected you to make the tackle. And when we played the New Orleans Saints, we expected you to play Jimmy Graham man-to-man with no help so we could help on the outside receivers. When we played um, uh, Green Bay and all of them, we expected you to play on Greg Jennings and show zone coverage and then play man-to-man on wide receivers. We expected Navarro Bowman, who had the biggest breakup in our, you know, plan against the Atlanta Falcons in the NFC Championship game before we went to the Super Bowl, to cover Roddy White one-on-one on a slant play on fourth down and break that football up. We trust – he didn't have no help on that. We trust him on their number two wide receiver on the biggest play of the game, biggest play of the season, and he came through for us. And that's why those guys were all pros. That's why they deserve everything that they had. 
And I'm just disappointed that Patrick Willis wasn't a first ballot Hall of Famer because he earned it. That's why, Dante, you're going to have a chance to be a real star on TV because people need to hear those names. They, yeah. they don't get talked about. Linebackers don't get talked about. And it's nice to hear a safety talk about linebackers because really you hear about pass rushers and corners yeah. for the most part. Safeties and linebackers are the communicators of a defense, and they're so important. When we go through drafts, you have to have, we always said, one safety and one linebacker that can somehow get the message out to everybody. And those two almost have to be synced up as well. I can tell the way you talk about football. I'm sure I know you're a communicator, and I remember you coming out in the draft, and everybody's like, "It's he loves football. It's everything. It it comes out when you speak, and I hope you do stuff like that on TV. Yeah, and when you're that communicator back there, you can't be afraid to be wrong, right? You have to have one voice back there. And if I'm wrong, it don't matter. Everybody play what I call, we'll get through the snap. And then – Things happen so fast out there, you have to put a lot of study into it, right? Calls, you know how fast calls change. And if you're in tune with the game, just locked in, and you're the communicator, the defense is going to get destroyed. So I always took pride in that. And if we look back at it and we want to talk facts, every safety I've ever played with in the NFL made the Pro Bowl when they were with me. From Eric Reed in Buffalo, from Deshaun Goldson in San Francisco, from uh, uh, Jarius Bird in Buffalo from uh, Tyshawn Gibson in Cleveland, right? They made the Pro Bowl when they were with me because I took the burden off of these guys, and I wanted to take the burden off of them, be the communicator, and allow these guys to just play. Because you know it can handicap you. If you're out there thinking, right, oh, maybe this call is this, you're done, right? So I took pride in calling the defense for us, and I can say that every safety while I played with them, we all made the Pro Bowl together. And when they left me, they didn't make the Pro Bowl again, so they should have stayed with me. Dante, a lot because we both live in Buffalo here, and so like a lot of our our listeners are are here. They're they're right in Western New York, and your name comes up, and it's it's still you know they're it's kind of fifty fifty for whatever reason. Like they hear Dante Whitner, and they come after you. I, I don't know what what the deal is, but I don't know if you want to set the record straight. Do you want to talk? No, what happened was I was dating a girl in Buffalo. And her name was Alexis, and her daddy used to play for the Buffalo Bills, a linebacker, uh, 58. He played with uh, Bruce Smith and all of them. He was a, a middle linebacker. I forget Conway? his name. Shane Conway? No, 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 a black guy. Um, what is his name? Tally. Oh. Daryl Tally. Was it Daryl Tally? He was 56, right? 56, Tally, right? Yeah. So I was in the midst of leaving Buffalo for free agency and dating her, and something happened to where her mother said something to me on Instagram, right? And I said something like, uh, ask your daughter or something, like, right? It was like, it was kind of like disrespectful. <laughs> but she shouldn't have ever attacked me on there. So ever since then, all the Buffalo Bills fans have been on my back. But I apologized a few weeks ago. Not even a few weeks ago, probably about 10 weeks ago. Hmm. Is that when the Buffalo Bills played the San Francisco 49ers? I went on a radio show in Buffalo. Okay. You know, it's no love lost. I'm, I'm actually um, proud of the success that they had this year. And at that time, I think I was, what, 24, 25 years old? So I really wasn't thinking. It was only reacting. Yeah. Nowadays, I wouldn't react like that. So hopefully they can forgive me. It was just a mishap. You know, and I dated the girl and the family was involved. So it's really not fair. <laughs> I had no idea. You know, see, 
one of my, my old podcast partner when I was at the Buffalo News was, was Tim Graham, and I know you guys went at it at Twitter at one point. I, I didn't yeah. know that was the root of it. We should have brought him on here. You guys could have buried the hatchet, you know? Yeah, I don't even remember that. I really don't even remember that. So that maybe that's why Tim Graham unfollowed me on Instagram. Oh, come on, TG. Maybe that's probably what it was, but I mean, I always made myself accessible to those guys when they wanted to talk to me in the media in Buffalo, whether we won, lost, or it was a draw. So maybe he should just be, you know, thankful. Well, you know for what? That. Next time you come back, we're we're gonna be peacemakers here on the Go Along podcast, and we're all gonna drink some beer, bury the hatchet, and you know what? Like, you should be able to come back to Western New York as a conquering hero. You had, a, you had some good years here in Buffalo. The team didn't win, but you know what? They didn't win for 17 years. And I we talked a lot about, like, the scheme and how it didn't fit you and all that. But, like, anything outside of that that you remember from your time with, with the Bills? I mean, not, not a lot of good memories, not any playoff berths. But, I mean, you were kind of the rock back there. Yeah, I remember making 150 tackles in a season and feeling like I wanted to retire. Right, I think we had the worst run defense in the history up until that point, to where we would give up 200 yards each and every week, and playing running backs the likes of Ladanian Tomlinson and Brandon Jacobs, and me being the last line defense and snowy cold Buffalo. Man, my body took a beat in that year. I do remember that. I actually remember a game where I dislocated my shoulder, tried to come back too quickly on Monday Night Football and played against Jamal Lewis. Remember him from Cleveland? Oh, yeah. In Baltimore? Yeah. Dislocated my right shoulder, hit him with my left, felt it in my right, came out of the game immediately. That was a brutal oh. game, right? Didn't they win in overtime, too? Yeah. yeah. I remember losing to the Dallas Cowboys because oh. of a bad defensive call by Perry Fuel. I think we had, like, five or six turnovers against them. I think uh, Kelsey... Our defensive end at that time had a touchdown that he caught the end zone that was blocked, right? And then at the end of the game was zero timeouts. They have they don't have any timeouts. They're down, I think, a touchdown, and we keep calling cover two. It was cover two, cover two. They working the sideline, working the sideline, working the sideline. And if you know defensive football, in that position with zero timeouts, what you do is align the sideline, not allow them to get out, make them throw the ball in the middle of the field, tackle them and win the game. Not Perry Fuel. He kept calling cover two. We lose that football game. So, yeah, all, a lot of the memories were like bad memories. But, you know, I'm still mm-hmm. thankful for being drafted in Buffalo, going through the hardships, understanding that, you know, you have to work in this league to win football games. And it's not a a given when you step out there on the football field, if everybody's not collectively in it together. And I was able to go into San Francisco and then, you know, be able to take what I learned from Buffalo and use it with my experience there. That Cowboys is really like the epitome of the drought too. I mean, that that is the game. When people think of that era of the Buffalo Bills, it's that Monday night game against the I mean, I've, you're not going to see a collapse like that very often. I remember watching that. It's like all you have to do is just not give up, give up the, the, the 10, 15-yard out. That's it. They give That's up any it. other play but that. So you align a guy at 5 yards. You align a guy at 10 yards. You align a guy at 15 on the sideline. Two deep safeties, one in the middle. Game is over. Oh. Well, what about – so you play for Mike Patton in Cleveland, correct? Yes. What the hell happened to him – as the D coordinator for Green Bay before the half against Tampa. Now, I like Mike. I worked with him in Buffalo. 
And I, I actually respect him as a football coach. You may not. That's up to you. But I know he's a good, a better defensive coordinator than calling that. Yeah, and I respect was, him yeah. as well. I respect him. He knows his stuff on defense. And that was just a, a brain fart right there, laps. You don't call that, put him in position one-on-one. I don't care who's the line out there, wide receiver. Mike Pett knows that. You back those safeties up. You play inside, man, two safeties high over the top. You give up a field goal if that. You do not give up a touchdown heading into halftime. If he can have that playback, I know Mike Patton would, you know, make the right decision. But in the moment, it's easier for us to stay here and be like, okay, yeah, we will call this and we will call that. But when you've been practicing on things all week and you understand the tendencies of the opposition, maybe he thought he saw something or knew something that wasn't there, but obviously he was wrong. What about – so then here's the next guy I got to bring up because we always like to – I like to talk about coaches sometimes just to hear some opinions. Jim Harbaugh was the strangest co- – I didn't know him very well. But we would be at the Combine, and you know how at the Combine um, you sit there for weigh-ins every morning. It's the first thing in the morning, right? And it's the most it's the most ridiculous thing we do in football. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. You have all these guys sitting there watching you come up and get your height and weight. It makes no sense. But – Everybody would sit, all the scouts and coaches would all sit in their, you know, in their rows of teams. Well, Jim Harbaugh, after the, you guys beat us that year the in the playoffs, you know, we're devastated. We're sitting at the combine, and he comes and sits right in. There's no assigned seating, so you can sit wherever you want. Harbaugh sits right in the middle of all of, the Saint, all of our, like, coaches and scouts, and he's just sitting there. He's actually sitting right next to me, and I don't know him at all. And everybody's like, we're kind of laughing, like, what is he doing here? And then he would just say, how are you doing? What's your name? And I told him, you know, we introduced ourselves. We just started talking. It was it was kind of strange. It was kind of cool. But he's, you know, how do you feel like he's doing at Michigan? And are, is he a good coach? Do you, do you respect him as a coach? Well, I do respect him as a coach. Yes, he has unorthodox tactics, and he plays a lot of mind games and stuff. But I think that's what it takes to win. If you look at Bill Belichick, if you look at the guys – actually consistently win and motivate their team to want to run through a brick wall for them, I think you could put him at the top of the list. And there was many guys in the organization from the front office to scouts that didn't like the way that he ran the organization. But guess what? We won. And it wasn't even close. And we should have possibly had opportunity for two, three Super Bowls. Right now in Michigan, I'm an Ohio State guy. Um Maybe I think he's doing great at Michigan, right? I <laughs> think he's doing awesome. Right what is he, like 0-6 versus Ohio State? Give him another extension. Right? Stop the extension. They're thinking about getting rid of him. I think he's doing an awesome job at Michigan, right? Oh, no, but on a serious note, I think that once he gets a quarterback mm-hmm. at Michigan, you'll see, um, you'll see his coaching start to shine through because, you know, he's a quarterback whisperer, supposedly. And he hasn't been able to nail down one of those top guys yet. I think Michigan has given him an opportunity to correct these mistakes, but they still won't beat Ohio State. We're just too dominant over that Big Ten. I think Ohio State was happy Ryan Day. I thought the NFL would come hard at Ryan Day. I thought he'd really have a shot. I hope he still does. He seems to have an NFL kind of feel to him when you watch the way they practice and who he's recruiting. I kind of feel like he has an NFL future if he wants it. I think a lot of these guys will be able to transition to the NFL a lot easier because of look at the offenses that's being run in the National Football League with all the misdirection, the eye candy, wide receiver reverses, RPOs, which are 
halfway illegal. You can't really play the run and the pass like that with lining down the football field, field. and they're not calling that. So I think that his offense will translate very, very well to the National Football League, but it's just about are you that good of a CEO to be able to delegate things and motivate guys and hold them accountable? That's one thing with Coach Harbaugh. He was going to hold you accountable. If you were one second late for a lift or you were one second late for a meeting, he was going to come to you, pull you out of that meeting, whether you were the star player or the 53rd guy on the bench, and he's going to make sure that you don't do that again or you're not going to be here. And he's going to tell you to your face. That's what I like about Harbaugh. He held everybody accountable, and there was no gray area. You know what you're supposed to do. On defense, you know what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do it, you won't play. Same with offense. And when you can hold each side of the ball accountable the way that he did, you're going to win a lot of football games. So he didn't necessarily care about feelings or emotions. It was about bottom line, wins and losses. And you have to respect somebody like that because in the National Football League, not for long, it's about wins or losses or none of us will be here. Are, are you surprised that it didn't stick in the NFL for him, like that he went back to Michigan? I mean, he won a lot of games in the NFL. I mean, uh, I, I imagine Eagles were at play there and, and, and that divorce. But um, – I don't know. I mean, I'm surprised that you didn't just stay at this level. Yeah, but money talks, man. You see how much Michigan was offering them, right? You see how much Michigan can – I think they just paid them again, right? Money talks. And then he had the rough, the ruffled feathers with Trent Baalke. I felt like Harbaugh was the main catalyst to the quick turnaround in San Francisco from nobody even talking about you to going to three straight NFC championships. It was just his methods of doing things. Yeah, Trent Baalke was there, but he didn't really make any decisions. He wasn't really there in the trenches with us day in and day out. He wasn't there, but he wanted to take credit for that. And that's where if you don't have guys in the front office that can work very, very well with your head coach, you have ego involved, when success comes, everybody's beating on their chest like it was me. No, it was all of us. We talk about teamwork in football. You talk about that with the players. How about we talk about that with the coaching staff in the front office as well? We all winning. We're all going to get raises because we're winning. And uh, maybe if it would have stayed that way, he would have been able to stay in San Francisco. But, you know, he had to go to Michigan. I think Trent Baalke just got with who, Jacksonville or somebody as their GM. So, uh, you know, may, may everybody have their best careers left. I really think that's why he went to me. I really think he was tired. When you're the head coach in college, you're the GM as well. You don't have to deal with that ego stuff like you're talking about. And it happens everywhere. We talk about it all the time on this show. When you're in a position like I was in in the front office, and you're, if the head coach and GM aren't synced up, I, I don't see how it's ever going to work. And I think you're right. I think it's nice to hold these guys accountable because it's always – the players are the reason you win anyway. And the players should get all the credit all the time. I've always been – we're pro player on this show all the time. But I can't stand – when you see GMs and head coaches arguing, I can't imagine as a player what you must feel like. And you see this crap, you're like, you, you must be like, just come on, guys, let's get this together. We're out here trying to kill ourselves to win, and you guys are having ego issues, arguments. That's not professional. Yeah, it's not professional. But at the time in San Francisco, it didn't really come out to the players. You would hear it in the media. You would see these guys at practice really not communicate with each other all that much. But it wasn't like it was out in the open. And, uh, you know, I think they did a really good job of keeping it away from the players. But behind closed doors, I know that there were some fierce meetings 
between these guys. And, you know, that's why it didn't last. I really felt like if Trent Baalke would have signed a lot of the free agents that he just let walk with that ego and, oh, I can just fill your spot or get somebody in a draft, we possibly could have ran two or three more attempts at a Super Bowl, right, with the offense that we had. Frank Gore still back there with a lot of juice left. He let so many guys walk away from Deshaun Goldson to myself, right? He just let guys walk out of the door and he couldn't replace them. And that's why eventually they started to lose football games and he eventually got fired. Dante, I want to ask you this too. So I guess it would have been before last season. I did a story when I was at Bleacher Report on the 49ers and you know, there was kind of a Super Bowl or bust feeling to that team. I mean, from F- Fred Warner, Jimmy Garoppolo, Richard Sherman, a lot of these guys that I had talked to out there, they, they said, look, we, we got to win it this year. And that was kind of the theme of the story. And there was even a point, I talked to John Lynch as well, and, uh, and Solomon Thomas. And Solomon Thomas admitted how, like, he was really going through some pretty serious mental health issues. And John Lynch basically saved his life, like, noticed it in the cafeteria, got him some help. But there was one part in this story where I talked to some scouts um, in that world, and they were they felt like they were kind of diminished. Like they didn't really have a say in the dynamic of that team. Um, in the draft room, it was, it was Kyle Shanahan kind of running the show, John Lynch kind of being the figurehead. I I came away wondering, like, what really is the structure here with, with the 49ers? Like who's in charge? These scouts felt like they didn't really have a voice when – the, when it was draft day and, you know, they're just kind of taking Reuben Foster, I think, that year. And, you know, they drafted Joe Williams when he really wasn't even on the board because Kyle Shanahan wanted him. Um, look, it's there's a lot of good going on with the 49ers, obviously. But do you have any insight into the power dynamic with that team right now? I don't have any insight into the power dynamic, but I do believe that they work closely together or they seem like they work closely together. And you have to know that Kyle Shanahan has a, has a strong personality, and he's been around a lot of football and understand great football players. Of course, he's going to miss like everybody else, but he has hit on some of the guys. And with the 49ers, if they don't have all of these impact injuries this year, are they still in the playoffs right now? I think that there's a good chance that if they don't have these impact injuries, that they're possibly in the playoffs still this year. So, it's worked out for them one out of the, what, four years that they've been there. But you have to get back on that winning track or you could be on the hot seat. So, you know, this is going to be a very big year as far as them figuring out their quarterback position, as far as them figuring out, okay, did we make the right hire a defensive coordinator, right? Or who do we have to keep on the defensive side of the ball and who do we have to replace? And are we going to go out and try to get Deshaun Watson, try to get – um the quarterback in uh, Detroit, uh, Matthew Stafford, right? They have a big decision looming, and it could be possible to make a break for the 49ers and coaching staff and the front office. The most lukewarm endorsement that a, a coach could give a quarterback, right? I mean, yeah. Shanahan's like saying, Garoppolo's our guy, but, you know, we're, we're going to evaluate every single position. Yeah, if something better comes along, then he's not our guy. So that's not too good of an endorsement if I'm Garoppolo. If I'm Garoppolo, I'm out working. I'm putting on my earmuffs, I'm tuning out the noise, and I'm, you know, really coming back this year to show people that I deserve to be the quarterback of the 49ers. No doubt, no doubt. And also, um, you, you touched on the Cleveland year there, and, and 
you know, me and Jim were texting about this last night. I'm just really fascinated about the quarterback on that team. But, like, you know, so with Patrick Mahomes, I feel like a turning point for him, at least according, you know, to his backup at Texas Tech, Nick Shimanick, and not not that Patrick Mahomes was, like, lazy or anything, but into his last year at college, he did kind of crank it up a notch and worked a lot harder in the weight room, in the film room. I mean, he started watching film way more and doing way more extra. He kind of just did what was required before that. And look, I mean, then he gets drafted and, you know, the rest is history. He could be the greatest of all time. Like Johnny Manziel, not, not that he's Patrick Mahomes, but he, he was dominant in college. He had all this talent, insane talent. You saw him in Cleveland. You you were there. You, you saw the dark side, that, that work ethic that, that wasn't there. I mean, that is just a huge difference between the two. You know, one guy starts working his ass off and now he's the greatest ever. One guy is at the bar drinking and disguised as somebody else and he's out of the NFL. What did that look like in Cleveland with Johnny Mendes? It was ugly. It was very ugly, especially when everybody's depending on you, especially that quarterback position. We had so many guys that were drafted and wasted. And I don't know if you remember the number eight, while I was there, I think it was Justin Gilbert. Oh, the receiver? Justin, oh, the no, corner, cornerback corner. from Oklahoma State, right? That's who they took yeah. when we traded. We traded with Cleveland and Buffalo. We got Sammy Watkins, which, you know, whatever. But, yeah, that's who they took trading back. They took, yeah. They took him, and he had issues on the field to where he couldn't even see the receivers, right, to where guys just running past him. You wasted your first round on him. Front office called down and said, hey, let's take Johnny Manziel. Mike Patton didn't want to take Johnny Manziel. Okay, so then we get into the football season. We see what Johnny can do in practice. He's not impressive. He's throwing a lot of turnovers, throwing a lot of picks. He can't read defenses. And they call down and make a call and say, Kyle, because Kyle Shanahan was our offensive coordinator at the time, put Johnny Manziel in the game. While everybody in the division is tied for first at seven and four, right, what I think, what, five games remaining. Everybody in Division 7 and 4, we didn't win another game that year because they wanted to insert Johnny Manziel. And at the end of the year, you fire Mike Patton, you fire the GM, and the call came from the front office. So we didn't understand that, and we didn't feel like we had a fair share at actually trying to make the playoffs and keeping our team together. So that's what I didn't like about my departure from Cleveland. And some people in the front office, they don't – operate the way that they should. Like, if you're going to cut guys in the offseason, don't wait all the way until everybody have their roster school to let guys go. If you know that this guy's not going to have opportunity to stay with the team, then give him a fair shot to go on and catch on with somebody else. Don't play these control manipulation tactics and really hurt guys' careers. So that's what I didn't like about the Cleveland Browns. Hey, there's a right way to – there's a right way to fire somebody. There's a right yeah. way to break up break up a relationship. We've all been through it. There's right ways to do that stuff. And you're yeah. right, Dante. And it's the professional part. You guys came to Rochester, I believe. You know, we had a oh, practice. practice. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember talking to Petten because he, you know, he was just left. And I could tell I was like, "How's Manziel?" And he just kind of looked at me like, "I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> we're not going to yeah. talk about this." Like I knew right away. I was like, yeah, he was handcuffed. There was he nothing was he could do because the ownerships had put him in. They were from Texas. They thought Johnny was going to come in, show all his magic, and run around and sell all these tickets. Man, it was disaster, right? So the biggest thing about Johnny Manziel was his feet. His arm, he didn't have it. 
He didn't he didn't realize defenses and read defenses and schemes. It was disaster from the jump. I mean, so it's uh, I mean, I know Ray Farmer was the GM. It, mm-hmm. it was coming from even above him though, right? Ownership said put him on the field for. Or, yeah, ownership said put him on the field. Then they went out and signed Dwayne Bowe, one year, nine million. I think he had nine catches that year, so he made one million dollars per catch, right? That's so. Bad. You know, it was just tough. Like, all the decisions that they were making on free agency and the draft just failed. And, you know, it was a tough situation, tough spot to be in. We tried to make it happen, but it wasn't going to work. Did you know that, like, Johnny was just out partying, drinking, you know, wreaking havoc then, too? Yeah, pretty much, because we lived in the same building downtown Cleveland. It was called The Nine, right? So most of the people that lived there is close to the party action, party district. And I think one of the biggest fights that he got in that was, like, filmed on TMZ was in the lobby of our actual complex. So I knew. And then there were times where, you know, we would go to, you know, we're getting ready to go to Baltimore for game 16, and our quarterback isn't on the plane, right? And our wide receiver, Josh Gordon, isn't on the plane either. So everybody's calling around, like, where are these guys at? They missed that whole morning of meetings. They missed – the drive over to the airplane, and then as we're getting ready to take off, they're driving up to the tarmac, running after the tarmac. The GM and the head coach go out there like, you guys might as well get back in the car and go home because you're not going with us. Do you know how scary that is to wake up or to think you woke up on a game day and didn't make it to meetings or the team flight? And for this to actually happen, it was like a nightmare for these guys, and they didn't really care. They went home, didn't care, probably partied some more, and that's why – you know, you can't win games in the NFL when you have guys that's not that doesn't buy into the system and buy into the culture. Josh, the difference between Josh Gordon and Manziel is Gordon could have been a top three talent in the NFL forever, right? Where Johnny Manziel owes Mike Evans in Tampa. He should he should still somehow get Mike Evans something, a gift every day for what he did for him at Texas A and M. Because he bailed I mean, he was just throwing jump balls to Mike Evans. But Josh Gordon was off the charts. Talented. Yeah, he was. And, you know, he was just a freak of nature, you know, and the things that he could do. And, and he even admit, openly admitted that a lot of times he was out there, he was drunk and high, right, all the way from high school through college to the NFL. Can you imagine the types of things that he would have done if he was sober and just totally 100% dedicated to his craft? The guys probably lost over hundreds of million, $100 million, <laughs> you know, in contract money. And, you know, it's just a devastating situation because you have to have compassion for people like that. They come from certain areas. They're used to certain things all their lives. And then when they get to a certain level, people really want to uh, ridicule them for that. And and that was the, you know, the culture that he came from, you know, family with drug uses, brothers and cousins. And then they just want you to change you know, your way of thinking overnight. And it's tough for guys that come from those types of situations. I mean, Dante, we spent a lot of time with doing character backgrounds, you know, as scouts. It's not just about the tape. And that support system, when we start, we try to spend a lot of time, what are these guys' support system? What are we getting when they come to our team? Who are they going to be leaning on? Because you want it to be a small circle. Like you said, you want to have family you trust, friends you trust. And guys like Gordon, there's a lot of guys that come, they didn't have anything. And, you know, that, it's scary to think, well, what are they going to do? Who are they going to – who's going to give these guys any type of guidance? And you're exactly right. I, I'm glad to hear that you're doing some stuff with the financial, you know, with 
players. I hope I hope people take you up on that. That's pretty cool. Oh yeah, and it's all about the tribe that you keep. You know, when you're coming up, and a lot of guys are coming from these impoverished communities, their tribe and people that are around really don't have the amount of knowledge and wherewithal and, you know, know what's really going on, especially when you come into that type of money. And then for an individual to leave their tribe, it's tough on them. It's tough to leave the people that you've known all your life behind, and they might not always have, you know, your best interests at heart. Like you go somewhere, some guy might do something, it's all on you because you're the biggest name here, and they're going to blame it on you. So I can see both sides of it. I think that we need to develop some way to help guys understand this and deal with the tribes that they come from so that they don't have so many setbacks and so many, um, you know, negative things that happen to them throughout their career. So well said. I mean, it's in with Gordon, it's like, I remember Tyron Matthew told me this once with him because he went through his own issues with, with marijuana and addiction and all that. And he's like, there's got to come a point where you just kind of look in the mirror. And, and just say, look, I, I got to get my shit together. It's on me. I can't blame anybody else. I, I, I got to fix this. And unfortunately for Gordon, he just never could turn that corner. And, and like you said, he left a lot of money on the table. You're only hurting yourself, you know? Man. Yeah, a lot of money on the table. And I think Brandon Marshall was speaking about this recently where he was saying that he he was getting in trouble and going through mental illness and issues and depression and anxiety and bipolar and until he sat with his psychotherapist and, you know, she told him, like, shut up. You're making excuses. Everything is about everybody else. It's not about you. He said nobody had ever confronted him like that and explained it to him like that. Like, listen, everything you're saying is about everybody else. It's not about everybody else. It's about you. So if individuals can just first understand that and comprehend that, then they'll be better off. Perfectly said, man. God, thank Jim, I mean, we, we we hit on a lot there. Dante, thanks so much for all your time. I mean, we got to get your take on the Super Bowl, though, before we let you go. Uh, anything that, that stands out to you in this match? If we, I don't know. Jim, more, more so than me, thinks this is going to be a Chiefs route, right, Jim? Uh, I'm all in on the Chiefs. I don't know about route, but it's. I don't think anything's easy. Tampa's defense is too nasty. They're not going to go out like that. But I do. I The way Mahomes is playing, I think there's a – I just – I'm not going against him. Well, the perfect cocktail to beat them is to be able to get pressure with your front four, not have to commit extra guys to being able to stop Mahomes. If he sidestep any of that pressure and start to move with his feet, he's going to put the ultimate pressure and stress on the defense and make those big plays downfield. So first and foremost, you have to rush them with four. You can hit them with some simulated pressures, making sure that you still only have four and you're dropping guys. Keep those safeties back and make all defense look the same locate Tyreek Hill and Kelsey, and then once you get closer to the red zone, it's not so much about topping them. It's about doubling them horizontally, right? Guys inside, guys outside, understanding that you're going to use the back of the end zone or the front of the end zone as an extra defender, clamping these guys. And longer down in distance, would know when they want to take shots, sacrifice pass rush. I mean, sacrifice pass rush for extra coverage. If you have a standard defensive end up, and make them jam Kelsey up to throw off the timing of the route, or if you have to bring an extra defensive back in the game to put on uh, Tyreek Hill when he aligns at that number three wide receiver position, he wants those deep routes, and you have to do it. You have to do unorthodox things, hit them with some surprise blitzes, and you might have a chance to beat these guys. But 
I don't know if they'll be able to do that. I think it's Kansas City's time. <laughs> you know, you have to you have to recognize when there's a dynasty. You have to recognize when there's just too much talent all over the field, coupled with uh, a coaching staff who is what one of the best coaching staffs, if not the best in the National Football League right now, with their creativity. Um, you know, being willing to go for it on fourth and whatever it was last week and put the owner with the backup quarterback in and put the onus on the players, I don't know if they can beat them. I'm picking Kansas City to win this one. But but you know what? At the same time, it's hard to go against Tom Brady. <laughs> There's always that. Tom Brady. Tom you Brady. know, ten, uh, ten Super Bowls. This could possibly be his seventh Super Bowl win. That's dominant. So I say all of this. But at the same time, you still have Tom Brady. And on that big stage, it's more than football. When we played in the Super Bowl and those lights flickering and flashing, you really feel that as a player, right? You can lose track of, hey, we're just talking about communication. You're supposed to make this call, but you're looking at everything else and the light's so bright that you make mistakes. So Tom Brady has been there. He's shown he has ice water in his veins. So I take that back. I'll go 50-50. I'm not choosing right now. <laughs> I think that you have opportunity whenever you have Tom Brady. So I think it's going to be a good game. Some some Tom Brady sorcery from afar here, I think. I think he just kind of like laser beamed right into this Zoom and and changed your mind, Dante. Yeah, yeah, you can um, you can you can't go against that guy, man. How can you? How can you? I love it. I love it. So, any you got some hot yoga planned for tomorrow? Going to hit that hard? Yeah, 6 a.m. in the morning, get some hot yoga in. And I might hit the gym a little later in the day. But in between there, I'm pulling about three hours to watch these games. I'm actually, Jonathan Vilma, I'm watching you, right? I'm watching you. I see that they got has you in there. I'm watching all of your games. You know, a lot of time, Tony Romo, a lot of these guys, right, trying to pick up some things on what they do well and what they don't do too well. So, Love That's it. my day. Love it. Love it. Well, man, thanks so much for spending an hour of your time with us, Dante. That was awesome. Would love to have you back, make you a recurring guest here. That was great. Oh, for sure. Just let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm free, man. Just let me know. I'll make some time. Perfect. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. That was the Go Long Podcast with uh, Jim and, and the great Dante Whitner. Appreciate it. Right. Thanks for having me. Talk to you guys soon. You got it.